Welcome back, listeners, to Radio Free South Bronx. My name is Desiree Joy Frias, and I'm here with Alan Lum. He is a city planner um, working at New York City Transit, uh, UNC graduate, and a resident of Parkchester. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Um, We want to discuss transportation and the state of transportation in our borough and in our city. Um, I just want to make it clear to listeners that this is not going to be the MTA episode. I'm going to need a full hour to do an MTA episode. This will just be about transportation in general, and we're going to touch on the three tenets for transportation, which is safety, cost, and reliability. Alan, tell me a little bit about your background in transportation. Um, so I I started getting into transportation ever since I was really young. You know, I'm a train nerd, so I that's I, my fascination with trains have, has been pretty endemic since my childhood. But um, I didn't really start getting into it until I was a senior in college when I realized that um, transportation planning could be a profession. So after college, I started interning at Project for Public Spaces. Um, I um, and then I, you know, applied to grad school at UNC and then did that. I interned at the um, Federal Railroad Administration between um, my years at grad school, and then um, you know I started getting involved in local activist advocacy organizations like the Writers Alliance. And then I started also getting involved in the Transit Center. You know, I'm, I'm pretty in- locally involved in the, in the city. Um, I work at New York City Transit, and my job there is to kind of determine the cost of providing support services for capital construction projects in the on the subway system. Mm-hmm. And I, I have your PowerPoint, which is re-envisioning the Cross Bronx Expressway, your project. Um, I'm going to attach that if you're fine. I'm I'll fine attach it to the, to the show notes so people can take a look at it. Okay. Um, but you pointed out... Um, so a little background on the Cross Bronx Expressway. The Cross Bronx Expressway was opened in 1930, uh, started in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Robert Moses era. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to have a way for people from Manhattan to access the outer reaches of the Bronx. Um, it's 6.5 miles. And the official cost in 1963 was $128 million. Right. Which in today dollars is $1 billion. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, like, how did the Cross Bronx Expressway come to be? How did... City planners were were thinking about... This came out of a time where highway infrastructure was being heavily built, and there was no... And New York City wasn't left out of that conversation. Um, so, you know, at, back in the day, Robert Moses got hired as the Parks Commissioner. But basically, that came out of a result of him wanting to have all these highways across the city... And the Cross Bronx was envisioned as this linkage between Long Island and, like, the rest of mainland America. And so it was envisioned as that vital link. But in the history of the development of it, there was an option to really put that route just even about block south so it wouldn't, it wouldn't kind of disrupt the neighborhood of, of the South Bronx. But he chose to ram it through what this current configuration today. Do you, but yeah, he could have gone a block south mm-hmm. and not uh, displace people. Right. Um, but he did. He did displace many families and many homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are homes and units that have not been replaced. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Cross Bronx Expressway is huge in terms of what um, a highway looks like in a city. Uh, mm-hmm. It intersects four subway lines, mm-hmm. two interstate highways, 
three commuter rail lines and one parkway. Right. Um, so it's like this big Goliath or like this, you know, this big thing in the middle of our borough. Right. Um, yeah. And what do you think the impact is of living around this huge highway in the middle of an urban city or an urban borough? Um, it, the impacts are very huge and myriad. For I mean, for example, it has, you know, lo- lots of the South Bronx living along the corridor suffer from, you know, asthma problems. Children, especially, because of all this continuous car exhaust kind of fuming out of the highway. So that's one impact of it. Another is that, you know, highways put in cities, they don't, they don't belong there. So in that sense, by interrupting the city fabric, the fabric of the city, you know, you're disrupting neighborhoods. You're not allowing for connectivity. You're, you're, you know, it's a very, it's a very, it has a very repellent effect. There's no, you know, everywhere you go on along a highway, there's no sense of community there. So in that sense, it really breaks up that community very literally because there's no, you know, there's no sense of identity. There's no sense of, you know, ownership of living in that area. And um, another thing is that it has really exacerbated the poverty around the region. And not much of it has never recovered from the days when it was constructed. Yeah. Um, and it still remains one of the poorest districts in the Bronx. Yeah. And, and like you said, it does kind of directly bisect, literally bisects communities. And, right. you know, he put these in with considering what existing communities were already there exactly and right much of it was you know as i understand was a very ego-based thing it was all about okay what what do i like about this and then no one's opinions really mattered to him yeah Mm -hmm. um and i think that um in terms of moving like looking towards the future um i hope that city planners do take more community input and community um community opinions into account when they're planning do you do you see that in today's um, i think um, in some senses there are but um like that's where jane jane jacobs comes into the forefront because because of this rampant highway building in the city jane jacobs came along and said you know no more because this is destroying all of our communities you know he was going to put a highway in um, across Midtown Highway. Robert Mid- Robert Moses was. Right, yeah. And so she was like, we don't need that. Like, it's going to do what it did to the Bronx. He was going to put a highway over, like, the I Times think, Square area almost, like, from 10th to 1st? I think it was, um, correct me, if I, I, I don't know which, which corridor it was. I think it was more south, south of that, near, like, even the Canal Street area. And just put like a highway, guys, like right, like a like a whole like cross town thing, like a six lane highway in there. Can you imagine that? No, I can't. Oh because, my gosh! You know, you can barely fit a car in some of those streets in downtown Manhattan since right. they were, you know, planned for a horse and carriage. You know, mm-hmm. and if we really go into like some of the smaller streets in downtown, they're like little alleyways. Right. Exactly. So, um, and they're not meant for. And like, if you did that, it was not going to be meant for people. They were not. You know, cities are meant for people, not for automobiles. Do you feel like the, the the movement now is towards having community input in city planning? Oh, that's right. Okay, so I um, I came across this this essay by my old, um, and you know, back in the day when before Jane Jacobs, planners had so much power they could kind of actually do whatever they wanted. 
but Robert Moses abused that power. And so now Sydney Planning has been left out of, you know, the conversations for Sydney Planning have been left to the, um, it's almost an afterthought. We don't have as much power as um, people think we do. But having said that, that doesn't mean that Sydney Planners, um, there's still not problems with the way Sydney Planners handle handle their interactions with local communities because, for example, the Jerome Avenue rezoning, you know, Department of City Planning keeps, you know, giving these presentations about zoning proposals and they keep getting criticized for how they're handling it and they're not really listening to local constituents. So so in some ways, yes, like, city planners are being forced to listen to, to local constituents like they never used to have to back in Robert Moses, but... Even today, they're still not considering the needs of people who are, um, you know, people who are directly impacted by their plans. But mostly, I feel it has a, has, has a thing to do with, like, you know, race or income levels. Because I feel like, you know, it seems to me that they, they tend to listen, they tend to engage this, the citizens of, like, Manhattan or Upper East Side a little bit more seriously than they would do for citizens of the South Bronx. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting to see, you know, um, how they choose to get um, community input and where they get it from. Right. Because, you know, even though we have incredible community boards here in the Bronx, not everyone can go to it because they might work late or they might. Right. And those are the people that may be even the most affected um, right. by changes to the transit or to infrastructure and um, transportation in their community. So trying to figure out... Um, definitely for me, something I'd like to see going forward is figuring out how to get input, mm-hmm. um, in a multitude of ways, in a multitude right. of forums, mm-hmm. uh, including community boards, including, you know, flyering in, in, you know, near, near, you know, right. um, train stations right. yeah. at rush hour and getting as much feedback from community as possible. Because it, it, you know, as you said, we can't imagine putting a huge highway in, in downtown New York because that's oh. the way it looks and, and that's the way that people want it to be. Right. Um, and I think that people should have an input in what their community looks like. Exactly. And it's crazy because I went to a community board hearing for the L train shutdown in, in downtown oh, Manhattan. The L, you know, why is that not in my notes? I've been talking about the L train shutdown yeah, for two weeks yeah. now. Um, um, we can definitely talk about that next. Yeah. But yeah, you went to a community board meeting about it. Right. And so, you know, it's, and I mentioned the differences in how, you know, city officials engage with local citizens based on what their background is or what the neighborhood is. And it seems like a lot of NIMBYs, you know, short for not in my backyard, I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Um, they make the most noise about, like, you know, they don't want the L train shut down or they don't want to reconfigure 14th Street for a busway because they simply don't believe the numbers about how many people use the L train, which is really preposterous. It seems like, you know, and the, and the reason why, and the thing is, like, they get taken very seriously, even though they're very pseudo. They're basing their numbers off of pseudoscience, or they don't have anything to back their back their assertions up. Yeah, so let's go back for a second because right. I think the L train shutdown fully highlights the intersection of these three tenants: safety, cost, and reliability. Right. So uh, tell the listeners why. All right, I'll go even further back. A little background: two thousand eight, two thousand seven. Um, we have the recession. 
People start moving to New York City looking for work. Right. They want to live along the subway lines, but they need it to be affordable because a lot of them are recent graduates or are currently in college and don't have a lot of money. Right. They find these areas in north northern and northwestern Brooklyn. We're talking about Red Hook, Williamsburg, that kind of area. Right. It's along this new train called the L. Right. And it can get you into downtown Manhattan Union Square right. in about 15 minutes, depending where you are. So they start flocking to live near the train line, which is how a lot of New Yorkers choose where they live based mm-hmm. on what subway is there. Right. And they move in and we have this whole, you know, talk about gentrification and mm-hmm. hipsters. Um, you know, people are displaced from their homes in these neighborhoods in many cases. Rent goes up. Right. Now the rent there is above market rate in many cases mm-hmm. but now now that it's 10 years later 2018 now they're shutting down the l line right and all of these people who are paying above market rate right to be near a subway line are no longer going to be near a subway line so right. tell us why why the l is shutting down what the community is saying about it. So the L is shutting down because um, they have to repair the underwater tubes that the L um, travels on. Um, you know, in Superstorm Sandy in 2012, a lot of floodwaters really um, overwhelmed the tunnels and the, and the salt water kind of pretty much had a very corrosive effect. So it pretty much destroyed every kind of underground infrastructure there was, like tracks, cables um signal systems um dirt rail every you know the whatever whatever infrastructure was going on down there was um it was obliterated by the salt water and so you know new york city transit has been going and it and it's not that's not the only tunnels that were that were affected like all of the underwater tunnels um in lower manhattan were also flooded too um and new york city transit has taken um, being proactive about fix like really repairing them. That's why the two three is always shut down during the weekends. But the L train gets the most attention because there's not any sen- sense of any service. Re- there's no um, redundancy in subway service around that area. Yeah, so it's not like the two and the five line. Whereas right. the two is shut down in the Bronx, you can take the five on the same line. Exactly right. There, like if the L train is shut down, there's no other way around it. The closest one. It's like the JMZ lines, which is like a mile down south, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why. Um, so they're repairing that for a year and a half because they just really have no other choice. Um, and the reason why, like I said earlier, why it has such a huge impact is because, like you mentioned, all of these people were, you know, relocating along the L line because it's so it's prime optimal space. It's like, um, it was a very impoverished area, so they thought, okay, let's live this area. It's, it's it's financially accessible, but it's also physically accessible to the rest of the city. Um, just that when this kind of project is going on, there's no none of that. All of that will be wiped out, um, and that's why it's a, for them. They perceive it's it's such a detriment to them. Um, so the community is is voicing outrage. They do want the L to stay open. Um, no, I mean people in Brooklyn um, from the news coverage is that they they were presented with two options: either they could go with a prolonged, you know, three year shutdown where you know L trains wouldn't be sh- um, only going to the city on weekends, or they would do a kind of this shutdown one tube at a time, 
So they basically were single track the L train, you know, when the other was closed. But the thing is, by single tracking, you're limiting the frequency. You're limiting the frequency of tra- trains that can run through that one tube. Because, you know, if one train is going in one direction, the other going in the other can't do anything until the yeah. other one is Passes. clear. Yeah. yeah. So right now, I think the L train at its current capacity goes at like 24 trains per hour, which is a lot. If they were doing single tracking, it would be reduced to six trains per hour. That's that's not that much. And the wait will be really long. So I think the Brooklyn residents were happy about, were more than fine with, you know, just biting the bullet and just having a full shutdown together just to deal with it. Um, They were obviously not happy, but I think from what I heard, they, they came around to the idea. Yeah. yeah. Um... Most It's mostly... Manhattan residents living along 14th Street that really take issue with it. And I do think that um, everyone, all community members along the line, should have a right to voice their opinion, whatever Absolutely, it is, yeah. about these kinds of changes. Um, right. Even though, at the end of the day, it does feel like the MTA is going to do whatever they want to do. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think it does highlight um, the three big issues right now mm-hmm. with transportation in the Bronx. Right. Um, and that it's not safe, it's not cost efficient, and it's not reliable. Right. So let's talk a little about safety Okay. Um, in transportation. You know, the question is, how can, how can um, the MTA guarantee not only safety in the system itself, mm-hmm. but also with the humans interacting with it? Right, I hear that. I think um, for, for for kind of um, sexual harassment stuff like that, um, I I I can I don't have like one one good answer for that, other than I wish that I think that empty, well, its current campaign about reporting sexual harassers or um, that kind of thing. I think that's a great first start. Um, I I. Do you feel like I'm not sure if the MTA takes those, claim, those claims seriously? I think that maybe we should have a little bit more, you know, public safety officers on the trains so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Or even like because sexual harassment is such a pervasive problem on the trains. In other countries, there's specific carriages that are specific that only women are allowed during rush hour. Like I think they're in Japan. Um, when I went there last summer in Osaka, um, these women-only cars were at, located at either ends of those trains so that yeah. women can feel safe while riding the trains. And it's sad that, like, such a... Yeah, the, we shouldn't have to go to that level. Right, um, yeah. But, no, I mean, I'm open to any and all ideas. I think that continuing the current, um, the current process of just having oftentimes empty subway stations... With, you know, we've shut down a lot of um, ticket stations mm-hmm. and therefore taken out a lot of employees from the MTA system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe having some more safety regulations because, you know, yeah, you have a conductor on the train, but he's driving a train. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, taking care of the passengers. Right, right. And I think Japan is a good example of that. They mm-hmm. do have station workers mm-hmm. that are responsible for helping get, get people on the train, giving answers to questions. Right, right. Um, and just kind of maintaining order and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever the solution is, there has to be a solution because at this point, um, we do have violent crimes 
um, throughout the subway system. Yeah. We have felony assaults, and it's going up. In 2016, we had 74 felony assaults, and in 2017, we had 88 felony assaults. So something has to change um, in how so, we... So a lot of people, you know, are getting pushed on the tracks or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, We had... We had uh, we need to figure out how we can make our stations and our trains safer for from a personnel standpoint. Right, that's right. So one thing I can tell you is that during the in, the closure in the L train, the MTA is doing a pilot study on platform doors. I'm not sure if you know what those are. But basically, um, they're installed at the edge of the platform. So the whole platform is walled off from the tracks. And there are doors specifically at each location where the the train doors are going to stop at. And they only open when the train is is in the station. So Um, that people can't go into the tunnels. That's right, yes. And it's very hard to get pushed into the tracks because there's just a barrier there. But they've they've been implemented in Hong Kong. They they were the the first city that really kind of installed it system-wide. So they've, because they did that, you know, incidents of people getting run over by trains has dropped to zero, you know. Um, they've done it in Europe and on the um, Jubilee line and the on the London London tube. They did it on like line one on the Paris Metro. The air train has that too. Have you ever taken the air train? Um, yeah, at yeah. the at the airports, it's very similar to that. Exactly, those trains always seem so much better than right any MTA system. And exactly, you know, just just while we're on that, like, what are a few? Um, I think that transportation is one of the one of the few sectors that can borrow from what other cities are doing. Exactly, um, because you know sometimes you can't. You can't make a fix, let's say, in homelessness in Boston and expect it to work in New York City. Right, right. Right. Because people, the space, the people are all different. But with transportation, I think we can learn from each other. So right. so you mentioned in the PowerPoint a few cities, Boston, Columbus, and Dallas. But is there any ideas that you've seen in other systems that you'd like implemented here? Um, let me think. Um, I would like that. So, for example... Um, our, our system is woefully underfunded. There's always this talk about we need more funding for 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 um, for for our subway system, right? And there's a lot of ideas going around now about how to implement that. And, um, you know, our system is like any of the other systems all is in the black. And um, I want to point out Hong Kong as an example again because they're the only system in the world where their transit system operates at a profit in the red. Um, and they do so because they, um, I think the government, their government has a kind of a partnership with the rail, railway agency. It allows them, you know, land to develop um, around their station so that, you know, that, that revenue helps to expand the system and provides for maintenance. And that's one idea I wish that could be implemented. Um, I think there's a, no, like a... Figuring out why fiscally Hong Kong is is able to operate at a profit, and meanwhile the MTA is struggling for right. for, for to to stay open really. Um, and I think that people um, don't really know the extent to which MTA is in literal crisis. Right. So our operating budget for 2016 was 15.1 mm-hmm. billion. We mm-hmm. had MTA had 70 thousand employees in 2017. 
people took 2.7 billion rides. Right. So I did the math somewhere. All right. So if it's 15.1 billion for 2.7 billion rides, that's $55. Per rider. Per rider. Right, right. But not even per rider. Per ride. Right. Yeah, it's all it's almost that's twice like, as much as a as an Uber ride. That's that's for me, I mean, I understand that budgeting is hard and that it's a huge system and it runs twenty four hours, yes. But we're spending fifty five dollars per ride, regardless of like, you know, length. Like that doesn't make sense to me from a yeah. fiscal standpoint. A lot of it has to do with a lot of mismanagement at the agency. Um a lot of it also has to do with the way that our elected officials don't really pay attention to the system or has kind of allowed it to disrepair. Um, what you're talking about is also like a lot of, a lot of a lack of accountability. Um, so I, a few a few expose articles came out in the New York Times about the dire crisis of the subway and how there's rampant corruption in the sub in the system. It's I can't really name them off the top of my head, but but um this kind of corruption kind of is why where you um you're saying what you said to me earlier about why does it it feels like my ride is being subsidized five fifty five dollars every time i go for a ride yeah um and, and i i read that article and i remember that they went into a, a project they went into the second avenue line that they were finishing up and they went around and they checked all the workers and it turned out that there was like 60 workers that were there that had no job title, right. no job description. They were doing absolutely nothing. You know, we were, were paying these and people. Getting paid, and not getting paid minimum wage. No, they're paying like a big premium for that. Yeah. Like their salaries are like high 80. Some of, some of them like mid-level managers are making six figures, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's a, a lot of money from our taxpayers. It's not fair to us. And what's what's really frustrating is that... I don't feel like even our, you know, our elected um, district attorneys, our elected prosecutors have been taking a serious look about looking at the MTA for these kind of bad practices. Yeah. And, and just to make one more point about cost. Right. Um, and just, you know, talking about, in this case, talking about the MTA, because the, the, mo- the major cost for families and commuting in the Bronx is is the MTA. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in the Bronx don't have cars unless you live in the northern areas where there's mm-hmm. parking. Mm-hmm. Um, so the majority of the way people get around is by um, MTA. Mm-hmm. And the fare is currently two seventy five. Right. Which that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but for low income families, especially big low income families with multiple children, that's a lot of money. And the monthly metro card is up to one hundred twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big burden for a commuter and mm-hmm. there's no real discount if you live here as a New Yorker. Um, in my opinion, a way to solve the budgeting issue is to have one fare for tourists and visitors mm-hmm. and have another fare for people who are using it to get to their job. Yeah. So Writers Alliance came out with a campaign of an organization that I'm involved with. Their campaign was to have, um, fair, fair, their the campaign is called Fair Fairs, and they wanted their proposal was to provide um, half price metro cards to low income riders. However, our mayor shot that down, like did not rejected the proposal. So, you know, there was there was some legislation trying to help out the the neediest um, New Yorkers about how to get around, but 
unfortunately, that proposal was shot down. And it's frustrating, right? Because this conversation is not even just about transportation anymore. It turns out about how livable the city is for our poorest folks. You know, for a mayor that... I'm sorry to get into politics, but... No, no, please get into politics. Right. Um, Hold elected officials accountable for everything they do. Um, Call him out. Call him out. He has not stood up to the plate in the last two terms when it comes to any issue of transportation. No, and the thing is, transportation in New York is about an equity issue. I do not understand how... A mayor who sold himself about reducing inequality and made his whole campaign about exactly. a tale of two cities can can't see beyond can't see that how it's affecting the poorest people and actually rejected a piece of legislation that would have helped poor people out. Yeah, um, and that well, would have only helped. You know, like that's such a targeted response. Mm-hmm. You know, if you make less than a certain income, here's a half price metro card. You're still paying for rides. It's just going to be 50% off. Right. And it would only be for New Yorkers. And it would only be if they make less than a certain amount of money. That's a very targeted bill. It's right. not a, you know, lofty. Right. It's like a simple problem solving bill. Yeah. You said you were about reducing inequality. Here's the, here's a chance to make that right. But, you he know. He didn't take it. Yeah, he didn't take it. And, and you have to ask yourself why. And the problem is the MTA like other industries, mm-hmm. has lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And the union workers for the MTA has a union lobby. And they have an agenda. And sometimes the desires of the community and of New Yorkers, of everyday New Yorkers, is over you know, is overwhelmed. Falls to the wayside. Yeah, yeah, falls to the wayside because we don't have personal lobbyists to lobby Bill de Blasio. Right. So, you know, I think, I think in that expose... Um, Part of why there's a lot of corruption is because um, I think Cuomo had these kind of fav- lended favorable agreements to the trade union union bosses for the transit union, and so that's why you see stuff like you know these seventy untitled workers on the Second Avenue subway. Yeah, like you know the tunnel boring machine to to build out those tunnels in other cities. You know, at most it's like six ten people, but here, why are we having like 50 people staff a whole boring machine. And why are we building... I mean, the Second Avenue line is problematic to begin with. Why are we building a brand new line mm-hmm. for people who live in Manhattan, which mm-hmm. in that in the east side of Manhattan, overwhelmingly demographically, is white. White, it's, rich people. Right. Like, we're building them their own personal subway line right. when, you know, everything else is falling literally right. to pieces. Right. Well, my, my issue with the Second Avenue subway, well, so as a as a transit planner, I, I understand why there is need because the 456 is just overcrowded capacity. Yeah. However, why did it just stop at 96th Street? It should have gone all the way to 125th Street. We should have planned it all the way to the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? Like, it's just stopped short of 96th but you, Street. But you can see, you can see in, if you pull up an income map, you and you pull up a demographic map. Mm-hmm. Why does every? Why does you know the good stuff end in Ninety Sixth Street? Because then you start hitting the Harlem projects, right? Exactly. And you start servicing people who don't give you campaign kickbacks. And why would you do anything for someone who hasn't given you a campaign if kickback? You, you know, if you think about it, like all of like the recent subway expansions, there's a um, the seven subway extension to the Javits Center, exactly. Second Avenue Subway. I mean, there these are central business. These are wealthy areas in which they're being built. And 
you realize there's no serious effort to plan out lines in the outer boroughs. Nope. Like, why hasn't a more concerted effort to plan out a outer borough linkage, a triborough RX line? Yeah, no, and I've seen the proposal for the triborough line. It would go from, um, for listeners, it would go from Bronx to Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, super needed. Exactly. It would take, right now, if I wanted to take the subway to Flushing, mm-hmm. it would take me two hours. Right. But it's a 20-minute drive. Right. So that means there's a gap if, you know, if you can look at a, another form of transportation, there's a gap. And, you know, the thing is, a, a lot of, like, a lot of end-to-end trips, job-to-home trip trips, or job-to, um, or home-to-job trips, um, are being made in between the outer boroughs. There are not a lot of, like, there's this myth that everyone is always just commuting to Manhattan, but that's very far from reality. People from the Bronx are commuting to, like, Flushing to yeah. Jamaica because the to wherever you can find a job, right? Because you know what, like Manhattan is not the only job center in the city. There's other periods, um, other centers like Flushing, Jamaica, even in the Bronx, the hub. You know, yep, that's a jobs. That's a big employment center too. Why isn't there a more concerted effort to really plan out infrastructure for folks needing to traverse between these points? Please, yeah. tell me about your plan. Tell me about your vision for transit in the Bronx. So, you know, as as all Bronx residents know, it's really easy to go up and down the north-south, right? Yeah. Every line provides that opportunity. But it's so hard to, like, go from east-west. And it should not, and by bus, sometimes it could last more than an hour on the bus. Just go from, like, you know, Washington Heights all the way to Parkchester on the BX-36. So, the re... My my personal side project came out of this idea that we need to address the serious east-west um, transportation facility right now because, you know, I see, I you know, the bus riderships on the BX-36, like, you know, um, I think the BX-19, the BX-6 bus, um, they're... they're they're really heavily used. Oh yeah, and, and and they're very far and few between. Um, the nineteen is the way my grandmother comes to visit me from her house, mm-hmm. and sometimes she'll be standing there for over a half hour waiting for a nineteen bus mm-hmm. in the middle of the day. Like right. it's not like she's not coming to my house at four in the morning. She's right. coming at like one in the afternoon, and there's no buses. Exactly. So that's that's another issue about how MT does not seem to know how to like schedule its buses or oh, yeah. not making holding its drivers accountable i don't know what's going on um, uh, yeah and i yeah i mean if you just it's easy you count the number of people at different times of day right. for a few weeks right and then you schedule the buses accordingly right this is not rocket science so yeah exactly so i you know the so my my so i was like i i turned my attention to the cross Bronx expressway because i'm like you know, Harris is wrong that was imposed on residents of the Bronx. Very unfairly, it wiped out everyone's livelihood. You know, I'm like, you know what? The thing the thing is, the, the majority of the people using that facility are not even from the Bronx. They're from Long Island. They're from Queens. You yeah, know, the drivers on the Cross Bronx Expressway are not driving back to their home no, in the Bronx. Exactly. So they're you know, going through us to go to Westchester and Yonkers. And yeah, so my my purpose was to create something that's for us by us. And so I was like, here's this existing infrastructure. Why not convert it into a really nice multi purpose corridor? You know, 
where the roadway is right now, we would, you know, install train tracks on it, build out a few stations, you know, and it's perfect because it already like crosses, like you said, six subway lines. Um, in the in the Bronx, it's like the six train, the two and five train, the four train, and the D train. That's five already. Mm-hmm. And then Manhattan, you know, it, there's you would the hit one the AC, the yeah. AC, and the one. So like, why not? Like, look at this opportunity. And, to link all of these different lines. Exactly. And then, you know, so that's on, on the bottom. But, you know, in certain places where the the expressway is below grade under street level, you know, my plan was to kind of cap it over with, like, some linear, some park stuff. Because at the same time, it, it addresses the issues of, like, a shortage of park spaces in, in the Bronx. And also, this would help to kind of, like, really kind of clean the air clean the air of emissions and that kind of thing yeah and then along other areas it would be prime real estate for developing affordable housing so it addresses a lot of issues all at once and so that's why i wanted to i'm, I'm trying to spearhead this project as much as i can no i think i think it's a great um i think it's a great project from a social justice standpoint too because yeah. like you said you're you're reclaiming something that was put in by a white man with right. uh, by a rich white man right. from you know Manhattan who just said almost like a you know a child building a Lego right. city just stuck a stuck a highway an right. expressway in the middle of where people were living right so like you know like you said like city planners like like if you've been to like a or like a planning session it's like we have like a there's like a map and you know you all like lego color lego sticks and people kind of put whatever they feel like on it but the thing thing is people just think that's what, how it looks people can just do whatever they feel like on the map however they forget that you know you need community input about that yeah you know and i think that um it does achieve th- your three goals that you have in the conclusion. It does reduce the carbon footprint mm-hmm. um, by rerouting a lot of that, a lot of the number of cars coming through our community. And oh, here's another thing I wanted to address because a lot of cri- criticism or a lot of pushback I get is, won't that make traffic worse? But um, it doesn't, and and it's been proving throughout time that every time you take take away a highway, the cars do not suddenly make the traffic on local streets worse. They just simply vanish. And I think this is a very hard thing to people yes. to understand. So this also happened in Texas. Right. So in Texas, there was a highway that was considered the worst highway in the United States in right. terms of the amount of traffic. Right. So they said, all right, we have the longest traffic, you know, whatever, the worst traffic in the United States on this highway. Let's make it bigger. Mm-hmm. So they made it from like a four-lane highway to like an eight-lane highway. And what happened? It be- the traffic only just... The traffic the got worse. Right. The traffic got... Literally, there was more cars. So because they made it bigger, more cars used the highway, which means that times in terms of how much time people were sitting in traffic remained the same. What you're, so, what you're speaking to is this um, concept called induced demand. So if you provide a supply of something especially if it's like urgently needed, then everyone will flock to use it. So if you if there's suddenly like a supply of like highway lanes, everyone will be using it. It doesn't matter. And this is where people get this misguided idea that, okay, traffic is bad right now. So let's expand the number of lanes. However, that just pretty much continues 
perpetuates the same exact problem you were trying to solve. So um, the, the, the solution I'm speaking of is called um, it breaks this paradox. Basically, you know, this idea that once you remove something, the car should disappear. And there's a lot of examples of that. In Portland, um, I don't remember which highway it was, but they removed a very specific highway along, I think, the waterfront. And there was no traffic there. It became a normal, like, like a street-level boulevard. In San Francisco, when the Embarcadero Freeway was destroyed in the 1989 earthquake, um, well, it was heavily damaged, but then elected officials were like, well... Let's not rebuild it. Let's not rebuild it. Let's just tear it down and make it into a street-level highway. Let's, let's provide waterfront access. Um, let's build a new new tram line. And look what they have. Like, they have a nice community, um, nice community facility in which locals can enjoy the local environment. They can access the waterfront now. And look at the L train, right? right. So people, I mean, obviously gentrification caused a lot of issues in northwest brooklyn and in north brooklyn um but if you build a train line they will come right you built they built the l recession hit people needed a place to live that was not super high cost and mm-hmm. unfortunately it, it was in the low-income community and did displace people but people moved close to the subway state exactly the subway line and i totally agree mm-hmm. if you build a subway line from east to west People will we'll stop it. driving. Right. Because exactly. driving in New York City sucks. Driving exactly. in New York City, like, trans- having a transportation discussion in the Bronx is hard. Because really, you only got one choice. You right. Know, like, like, you're either taking the MTA or your ass is walking. Like, right. that's <laughs> like, Exactly. Or biking, I guess. But there's no bike lanes, which is another I think, thing. I realize that. I think I'm not, I don't have the data on this, but I think a lot of um, people, especially more um, well to do folks from the Bronx, the way they go about the Bronx is not even driving. They use car sharing services. Yeah. Like Uber. Like, and that's simply because there's no viable option. Like, if something, something like a public facility like that were to be provided, I'm sure those trips would suddenly be reduced drastically. Yeah, I do feel like other cities have more options in right. terms of even driver heavy communities. Like, people in other states, they do this thing called carpooling to work. Right. They like plan it out and like, they pick each other up mm-hmm. and then they like go to work together. Mm-hmm. We don't do that here. Like- right, right, right. Like, especially in cities around the world, I think I have to say that like a lot of Americans, U.S. cities, they don't do a good job of planning transit, like planning and constructing like rail lines. A lot of, I don't. It's not so much here, but um, in other cities, their metro systems have these things called parking rides, and yes, that's supposed to get suburban communities to stop driving in the city center but that still involves some driving it still makes them it still produces a lot of car driving trips the whole point is that you put you build a station and you build a like a um build like a affordable community around the station so that that produces two things it allows people to live closer to the station and also allows for higher ridership so like Transit and like land use and affordable housing; these are in- inextricably linked, and people don't realize that. And I think that your 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 plan, um, your re- your new vision of the expressway, mm-hmm. it also touches on the last point. So we covered safety, we covered cost, mm-hmm. and its reliability. Mm-hmm. Um, subway systems, train systems should categorically be more reliable than driving. Right. Um, exactly. In other cities, they have made that possible. 
like, um, like in Vancouver and Dubai, they built out automated systems. Like their trains are just robots. Yeah. It's almost like a personal taxi service. And it allows for a few things. When you automate the train service, when you replace, um, the tra- human train drivers with a, you know, with a computer, it allows for trains to be run closer together. That means more, you know, you more have frequency. more frequency. And it also fixes the human error of, like, crashing. Yeah. You know, because people have this misconception, okay, well, there's no human, so how, how will I feel safe? You know, however, there... The machine is safer than the person. Right, there's... Like it's like a backup camera on a car. Exactly. Um, There's I all mean, these now, trips and fixes, like all these correction stuff, so that in the event that something like that will happen, the system would automatically be be activated to prevent such a crash from happening. So when people say, "How will I be safer?" You know, you have to realize that progress is happening. Right. Technology is not perfect, but it's very close to it in many cases. Right. And we need to be flexible. And adapt to new technology because at the end of the day, it's going to save lives. It's going to make things safer. It's going to reduce the cost and it's going to make the subway more reliable. And there's, and there's proof that like automated systems are just safer. Like, have you ever heard of a, of a derailment on the air train? Not in the years that it's been open. How safe are elevators? You ride elevators every day. Those are automated systems. There used to be a guy. Yeah. Who was in there operating the elevator. Exactly. You don't do that anymore. Exactly. You push a button. You know, like, you know, you want to talk about how human conductors are just safer, but, like, didn't we just see, like, a ham drag derailment? We saw a MTA? Few, MTA like, last year. Right, MTA last year. had a, I mean, everyone the, in the United States had a rough 2016 with Trump as president, but mm-hmm. the MTA had an extra rough 2016. Right. We had several derailments, several... Just and they are all caused by humans. They fires, yeah, no, they like, were all determined to cause. Because right, of exactly. So the only syst- line in the train on the, on the system that is uh, built for automated purposes right now is the L train. Yeah, and even that is not per- actually automated because humans are still closing and opening the doors. When that's another function that is usually automated. So people are afraid. People are afraid of change, and I understand that. Right, um, but. You can be afraid of change all you want, but also recognize that the current system of transportation in the Bronx, whether it's driving, bike lanes, there's very limited bike lane coverage in the Bronx, and we have no bike sharing capacity because city bikes, city bikes, like many other businesses, is inherently racist and classist and thinks that, oh, if I put a bike station in the South Bronx, all my bikes are going to get stolen. Like, excuse me, right. there's more theft in certain areas of Manhattan than there is in the Bronx. So don't tell me that you're going to put them all over Manhattan. And, and they're, who's stealing a city bike? Nobody right. no wants, one, no one wants to steal your bikes. Right. It's a really heavy thing to, to want to take. Like, I can buy my own bike and it's way easier to walk. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Pawn it at a pawn store? Like, right. Like, the logo is right on it. So it's obviously <laughs> obvious that someone will pawn. That was pawned or stolen. No, no one's trying to fence city bike, city bike. Just put your bike sharing program in the Bronx. Right. All right? I'll personally guarantee that no one's going to steal your bikes. All right. 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 But you are going to be increasing access to another choice of transportation mm-hmm. for 1.4 million people that need an additional choice. Because, again, the MTA is always late. Traffic 
driving in New York City is not even like that's not even on the table. No. Um, and Mm. then yeah, biking. If there's no bike lanes and no city bikes, where are you gonna bike? How are you gonna bike? What are you gonna bike on? As an afterthought, and it's and that's sad because like our elected officials should know better than that. They're representatives of us. Why are we still always the last borough to be left behind and, and everything? And when it does things happen to us, it's like it's not really meant for people who've been living here. Yeah. Like you think about the development that's happening south of 138th Street, you're like, um, you know, these are all luxury developments. Yeah, the piano district. This presentation is from someone who lives in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Is from someone whose family owns, you know, who lives in a house in, the, in a in a co-op. In the Bronx, you know, you are obviously a stakeholder and mm. you're knowledgeable about the system mm. and transportation because you work in that field. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're someone who I think has more, should have more of a say in the changes that may, are made in transportation in our, right, in our, right, yeah. in our area. Absolutely. Thank, uh, thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to speak. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. This yeah. was a great um rant session about transportation yeah, no no but more than ranting um i think we've outlined some really some really good ideas this um this crossborough train right um ways to upgrade the system towards more automated systems um, right. in terms of mta mm-hmm. and to learn from other cities and other countries from their mistakes and their successes mm-hmm. so that we can stop trying like Sometimes it feels like politicians think they have to solve transportation problems on their own and start from scratch. You don't have to. Right. I mean, it's a very, it's a very, you know, ego thing. It's like, oh, it's, it doesn't affect me. So therefore, why should I care about it? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, is that, are you, so then why are you in elected office? Because you're supposed to care about all your constituents. Exactly. In that sense. Um, but yeah, I would love to, if I get a chance, I would love to talk about congestion pricing and why that will benefit, especially people like us. Yeah. Um, and I definitely want to do an episode on that too. Yeah. And we have to do it on the MTA. So yeah. we're going to have you back. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but thank you for thank you. outlining this plan. Again, I'm going to link it in the description below so you can take a look at his plan. Okay. I'll also give you all his contact information so mm-hmm. you can talk to him more about it. Right. Again, this is Alan Lum, city planner uh, for New York City Transit, but all ideas and comments are his own. He's Mm -hmm. not representing his organization. Mm -hmm. And thank you for being on our show. Thank you.